scripture passage this morning. It is lengthy and it is strong. Uh, you will likely not feel great after reading it, um, but we will endeavor to not shy away from the word of God. Yes? All right, so we're going to give it a try. It's going to be Ezekiel 16, verses 1 through 43. We're going to skip a couple verses, hop down to verse 59, and finish out the chapter. All right, Ezekiel 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, and for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you, kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, the olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons, and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and sacrificed them as food to the idols. 
Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and kicking about in your blood. Woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals, and aroused my anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitutions with the Assyrians, too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. I am filled with fury against you, declares the Sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute, when you build your mounds at every street corner and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute, because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receiving gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you for everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you were the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body in your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, because you gave them your children's blood, Therefore, I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those who loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will see you stark naked. And I will sen sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things. I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Down to verse 59. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet, I will remember 
the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways, and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older and older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed to never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the sovereign Lord. Should have done that in reverse order. <clears throat> Thanks, Becca. You were right. Um, maybe we could have got a guy to read that for you. Um, but here we are. So what is the main point that God wants to make to his people today in that passage? I think it's pretty obvious. It's that nose piercings are great. (laughs) Okay, that's not the main point. Um, When I was in Florida, I remember pastoring this younger guy who had been dating his girlfriend for like three years, and he had started coming to church, and he had kind of gotten to the place where he was haunted by the idea that the claims about Jesus, his death and resurrection, his reality were probably true, And he was also starting to grapple with the fact that that was going to matter for how he lived his life in ways that he was very uncomfortable with. The main one being that he'd been living with his girlfriend for about a year and a half and really didn't have any intentions of marrying her, but had every intention of staying with her permanently in his mind. Which almost never happens statistically, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt, which is very doubtful. So one of the things I said to him, he's like, I realized this, that like, what you're going to tell me is I should marry her. And I was like, well, uh uh-huh, yeah, I am going to do that. Um— but why are you averse to that? I mean, why haven't you done it already? I mean, you say you love her. You say you want to stay with her permanently. What's the difference? And he's like, well, I don't want her to stop trying. I've heard that several dozen times from different people, men and women, right? Um, that's not on the face of it stupid, right? I mean, on some level, as long as, you know, you're still a customer, you have some rights. You know what I mean? Because you could stop buying, right? Like, the customer's always right. Like, you know, it matters. So you, you, people have to pay attention to what you want. Does that make sense? The minute you're like, I'm in, and I'm never leaving, you know? I remember when I was in college, um, one of the things I noticed was that there were a lot of Christian women who, like, put a lot of effort into how they looked right up until the moment they got married. And then they got married, and it was like the classic hair that was down here, like, one month after they got married. It was like right here at the jawline, you know? It was like, I don't have to try anymore. You know, and I, like, like, I have a lot of sympathy for women in that, because I watch my wife, because I asked my wife not to have her hair short, to have it a little bit longer, and she has curly hair. It's a lot of work, and I, like, I watch her do that every morning, and I'm like, thank you, you know? And I don't, like, I don't blame them for that, right? But it's kind of like, I liked that. Why did you do that, right? Like, you don't want that dynamic. The pro- here's the problem, and here's the problem that you can't get away from, is that for human beings, um, whenever we're given a un- 
an unqualified gift of transformative grace that beautifies us incredibly. There is a level of moral hazard there. There's a moral danger that we are incredibly susceptible to, and we will virtually all fall into. And it's terrifying. It's horrible. And in order for us, because here, here's the problem. And this is, this is, in some ways, this is the biggest problem of your life, whether you want to believe it or not, okay? The biggest problem of your life is that God will never change his mind, that he endeavors to make you, metaphorically speaking, in some literal reality that we cannot yet conceive, a queen so beautifully full of splendor that your beauty is utterly complete in all of the gifts that God has given you, so that your radiance and your reputation and your splendor and your authority radiates beauty and attracts the hearts of all the nations and all the peoples and all the beings. And that is his purpose for you. And there can be no other. And built into that kind of gracious gift is the horrific problem that we are not morally capable of bearing that gift. And so something has to happen, something something like fundamentally supernatural, so that we become the sort of creatures that can actually bear glory, which is impossible. It's very serious. Right? I, I don't know if it was Lincoln that said, for every one, for every ten men that can bear terrible difficulty, there is but maybe one that can bear prosperity. And what if that prosperity isn't just a little money? isn't just a little success, isn't just a little increase in your reputation, but is divine glorification, divine beautification. Is there even one in 10,000 humans who can bear prosperity that can bear that prosperity? I don't know. What's God supposed to do about that? right? You see, we don't like to talk about morality. We don't like to talk about moral gravity. We certainly don't like to talk about shame. What we like to talk about is things like empathy, which is great. I'll get to that. But in the end, without an immense, divinely given, incredibly powerful foundation of moral gravity, rooted in our memories in a way we can never forget, we can't bear glory. And it's not something God gives with the snap of his fingers. In, in a certain way, we have to experience walking through, losing and, refine, and refining it in such a way as we can never forget it. You could say it, you could say it this way. Um, sorry. Moral gravity is the only immunity to the danger of splendor. Moral gravity is the only immunity to the dangers of splendor. Splendor always has dangers, right? Why? Like it said in the passage, right? I made your beauty, I gave you perfect splendor. I made your beauty perfect. What's the very next verse? But you, what? Trusted in your beauty. Right? Another way to say that is this, in the context of this passage. Shame is the compassionate treatment for lewdness. Shame is the compassionate treatment for lewdness. I'll get to it why that is in a minute. I want to take you just through, through just two steps for this. 
okay, this morning. The first is, is that <clears throat> extravagant generosity is inherently dangerous to us. I want to get this clear. This is really, really important because we don't believe this, and it is, it is demonstrated on every page of the Bible, right? So here's that verse. God says, you became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Lord. And there's this whole section, and it's long, um, in which <clears throat> God talks about all the things he did, right? And, and they're all metaphorical of the history of Israel, right? Like, kicking in your blood, that was like the time in Egypt, when they were sort of born as a nation, and, and they, they didn't have any kind of prosperity or security, and nobody was coming to their aid. It was only God who, wrote, who picked Abraham and raised him up among a people who didn't like him and ultimately survived through the patriarchs and made it into Egypt and all of that, right? Nobody cared about you, he said, but I did. And then he talks about all this process of adorning that I was the one that chose you for marriage and I made an everlasting covenant with you and I bathed you with water and I covered you with costly garments and I gave you your food to eat and I— and I, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I gave, 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 and I gave until your beauty was perfect. Right? And why does a husband give, right? He gives so that what he gives is the possession of his wife, but they are one. They possess each other. And they, and that's why he could say that when she gave away her gold, she gave away his gold. Right? You took away the stuff that was mine that I had given to you. Right. So, <clears throat> one of the ways to think about this is that <clears throat> whenever—don't read that. I'm going to get to it in a second. <laughs> whenever you're, we're given a gift, and this is true, like, this is true of your parents. This is true of being mentored at work. This is true of being coached in a sport. It's true of a lot of different relationships, but it is supremely true of God. Whenever we're given something that is so generous that it's transformative, the gift produces something in itself, a secondary thing. In this case, all the gifts of the husband created consummate splendor and beauty in the bride herself, okay? So beauty came into existence because of what the husband gave, right? Similarly, like when we—like I want to give a gift to my children so that when they leave my home, there is a character, a history, a strength instilled in them that isn't me. It's something that I gave that has become a thing in itself. Does that make sense? Whenever you're given a transformative gift, the gift becomes the thing in itself. The minute the gift becomes the thing in itself, there are two possible things to trust in. There is the giver, and there is then the gift. And so now what matters is what you want. What do you want? Do you want the giver and to please the giver and to be in connection and belonging and in love with the giver? Or do you see the potential of using the gift to get the other stuff you really want? Right? What, what do you desire? Which is why the, word, the Bible uses this concept of desire and what our desires usually push towards, which it uses the word lusts. Right? What do we lust after? What do we really desire? And what we really desire is to trust in the thing that we were given to get the stuff that we want. The, the word that, that is used for what that produces in us is lewdness. In the, new, in, the, in, the, 
in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the New International Version of the Bible, the word lewd or lewdness is used 15 times. 12 or 13 of them, depending on which translation you look at, are in either Ezekiel 16 or 20 to 24. It comes up repeated times. And it's connected to the concept of harlotry, which is similar, right? Open, promiscuous adultery that is not paid for, but it's still done in the eyes of everyone, right? Now, when you think about—so one of the things I, I thought is okay. Instead of thinking about lewdness flippantly, what does lewdness really mean, and what is its real significance? And as I started to work through it, I began to realize it was the opposite of something else that was in the passage that was also very clear, and that was the covenant promise of God to be her husband. That lewdness and covenant love are utter opposites in how they operate, how they form, how they change us, how they work, how they affect others, right? So for example, in terms of commitment, right, lewdness is utterly casual in its commitment to what it's getting. It's just transacting with something it desires for the moment to get pleasure. Covenant love is comprehensive, right? What's the level of commitment? Well, it's, it's everything. All at once, at the same time, forever. Right? Un, as terms of generosity, right? Lewdness takes what it gets as a gift, and it spends it on whatever it wants. Whereas covenant love gives. I gave, I made you beautiful, I took and I gave to you. You took and you spent, right? Relationships, it's casual and transactional, right? I'm going to get what I want from you. You're going to maybe get what you want from me. That's the nature of our relationship. That's as far as it goes. But in covenant love, it's committed and bonded because it's comprehensive, right? So you're not just an object. You're a subject. You're a who, not just a what. And the minute you become a who and I'm a who, it's subject-subject, there's all these personal responsibilities, connections, and bonds between us because you're a person. But as long as you're a what, then I'm going to get the what I want from you, then— you're just the what, and I'll give you a what, and you can be a what for me, and we'll just use each other. Or maybe I'll just use you while you're just trying to use me, right? Which means the scope of the relationship is all occurred. I'll just take what I want and leave what I don't want. So this is why, for example, pr promiscuity is a good example, and that's one of the reasons why the metaphor is used. Everybody wants to disconnect sexuality from everything else. Everybody wants to do that. Everybody wants to say that you can have sexuality over here and then everything else over there. And God forever says that's not true. People are whole persons. Sexuality and maleness and female are so rooted in our being of what we are. You can't do that. It's, it's part of the comprehensive nature of who we are. It enters another comprehensive relationship, and they can't be bifurcated. It's not just because—God doesn't say that promiscuity is wrong just because people can get STDs and have pregnancies in which two parents aren't consistently present for the upbringing of the child. Those are the side effects and the justice realities of why— you can't do it. It's not the fundamental reason of nature, which is that our sexuality, like all the rest of us, is fundamentally comprehensive. Right? Which means the effect on our neighbors is that if we, if we treat them objectified, all cart, however we want, transactional, the result on our neighbors is going to be injustice. We're going to hurt them. But if it's not, it's going to be—we're going to be in relationships which heal and form and create justice. If the, the long-term reality is, is that the wife, the eldest wife here, squanders all the gifts. When she's done, she has nothing. She has no relationships that she's purchased with all this spending. Nobody cares about her, right? She has none of the gifts anymore. She doesn't even have her children. She's nothing. Everything has been devoured. Everything has been squandered. But the, the husband is trying to build a legacy. He's trying to create something that builds and builds and grows and builds and grows and builds. 
which means the effect on life is for the, for lewdness is parasitic. It always has to suck the life out of something else. It always has to spend what was given by someone else. You see, she doesn't give away anything that is inherently hers. Everything she gives away is stuff she got from someone else, and then she gives it away to parasites as a parasite herself. But verdancy or greenness or growth is what, what happens when you give and another gives back, and there's this reception and love, love coming into love happens. What happens is it grows and it grows and it grows. The most fundamental natural metaphor for this and literal reality is children. That two people come together, and instead of selfishly just simply enjoying each other and not being burdened by the reality of other lives that have to be painstakingly formed and created and creating all kinds of inhibitions and brokenness of all sorts of different sor sorts of things and cost and expense and heartache. But that's not how they look at it. Out of their union produces more life, more life, more love, more hope, more actors who can take dominion in the world and bring love and redemption to it. It's more. It produces more without really taking away. And so the moral aesthetic of lewdness is ugliness and disfigurement, ultimately. And of covenant love is beautiful beauty and adornment, right? He, everything he does makes her more beautiful. There's no cost to her other than to be loved, right? The public witness of it is that for lewdness, it's, it's, it's shameful and it's notorious, right? It, it makes note of itself by what it transgresses and breaks and hurts and the injustice it creates. Whereas the other is noble and honorable that when people see it, it produces the effect on culture of like, it makes them better. It ennobles them. Like, when you see something that's noble and you want to be more like it, it ennobles you. You want to be better. You want to be more like a covenantal lover, right? But when you see lewdness, it degrades you. You think, that person's getting something I'm keeping myself from for all this morality that I'm living under, all these rules that I'm submitting to, all these things that I'm accepting, when if I just threw it all off and I did what a strong, free person does that determines their own destiny, then I could be like that person. I could do what that person does, and maybe I could have the notoriety or the fame or the whatever that person has. It destroys everything and everyone. It's one of the reasons why people that we think of as like old and like too conservative morally and people who used to think that women shouldn't show their ankles on television, like they were wrong about some things, but they were onto something. They were onto something so fundamental about humanity that we've forgotten it. And because of it, we don't understand some of the deepest things about our nature. It's one of the reasons we come up with solutions that don't make any sense. As you track through this passage, it shows the descent into lewdness, right? It starts with just lust. Now, in this case, it's really interesting how in chapter 16 and 23— I hope you'll read these chapters this week, like, really in-depth and read them over and over again. But in chapters, chapters 16 and 23, there's reference in chapter 16, and there is multiple and more specific and graphic references in 23 about how when Israel was in Egypt, they were initiated sexually by the Egyptians. Meaning, in this case— initiated into worldliness and idolatry. And that, and, and what, it, what it pictures is a young woman who grows into um, full puberty, so she's sexually mature, but she's not emotionally mature, right? And this lecherous older man with gear initiates her sexually into a very lustful form of sexual relationship with no care for her future, no creation of husbandry, no covenantal love, but lewdness, 
because Egypt owned everything. Egypt did what it wanted with everything. Egypt subjugated all the peoples, took their money, became rich on their behalf, objectified all they had control over. And Israel was just another young woman that he initiated. And that's how she found herself as this young woman. And it affected how she looked at the world. And what he's saying is, is that there was an infection that was transmitted culturally in the people of Israel relative to culture and idolatry and lust that they never got over. It was a, it was a, a wound. It was a kind of abuse that they never really threw off emotionally. They never allowed themselves to fully trust and believe in the Lord. And that, that like lustful disease that had made itself into her character as a woman never got exercised. And so she was never able to really love her husband. She never really threw it off. She never really dealt with it. And she, instead, she lived according to lust rather than having her desires healed, right? And what that produced was a moral amnesia. She wasn't able to remember what was done for her. She, she couldn't create the emotional connections and bonding necessary for her to, to, every time something was done for her, for her to remember it was done for her, and for that to create a long-term bond that she could never throw away because of the history of it. Does that make sense? I mean, so my wife and I have been married 22 years, right? There's some ways in which, like, I'm old and I'm aging and, like, I'm susceptible to certain kinds of temptation because I'm not 23 anymore, right? But there's a certain kind of temptation I'm less susceptible to now because I'm not 23. Because if some woman hits on me, I have 22 years, I have really, like, 26 years of memory with my wife. Of memory of all she's done for me of the children she's born, of the sacrifices that she's made, of the loads of laundry she's done, and of all the forgiveness she's offered, of all those years. And if some tar offers me something, like, I don't have to just be an idiot. I have to throw away decades of memory. And those are like ropes that hold me back from any of my lusts that remain. And you see, because of Israel's lusts, because of the way she had given him, because she hadn't coped with it, she was incapable of creating the kind of memory that holds you strong to love, to covenant. And so she, she, she didn't form it, and so she just forgot. He did everything for her. She just forgot, right? Which led her to idolatry, right? She just, she went after other things. And it gets really graphic. Like when it says, you made male prostitutes and had harlotry with them, we're supposed to imagine a mental image of her engaging in physical intercourse with physical male, like, creations that are not alive to pleasure herself. And we're supposed to understand that as a metaphor for the pleasures that we give ourselves to and that we trust in relative to how we chase things with what we've been given. That it's, it's like that. doesn't sound healthy, right? And what that leads to is lewdness, where in order to really keep enjoying these things, you actually have to throw off every mental moral constraint that would produce any kind of shamefulness about your behavior. You have to believe that you do these things not because you're wicked, not because you're a bad person. Nobody can really believe they're a bad person for a long period of time. You have to come up with a reason why you think you're a good person. So you start to come up with reasons why being transgressive, going against the social fabric of morality, Doing whatever you want makes you strong. It makes you smart. It makes you not a sucker. It makes you, um, it makes you uninhibited. It makes you sexually positive. It makes you, well, like, insert vocabulary. 
But it makes you feel like you're actually better than everybody else because you're worse than everybody else. Because you're on to it. You're on to all their hypocrisy. Right? Because no doubt many of them are hypocrites, at least formally because they're trying to do something they don't fully live up to. Right? Literally everyone in the church, by that definition, is a hypocrite. Because all humans are, if they have any moral standard at all. The only way to not have a church full of hypocrites is for us all to be lewd. For us all to decide there are no moral constraints, we can do whatever we want, then we can never fail to live up to our moral standards. Wouldn't that be great? There are some medicines that are worse than the disease. We will, listen, you guys, High Point Church, by that definition, will always be a church full of hypocrites. And I will always love you for it. You know what I mean? Now, the real definition of hypocrisy, that you pretend to do something you have no intention of attempting, that is the kind of hypocrisy that has to die and doesn't need to be here in us. Right? Right? And then when you get to the point of lewdness, you're just devouring and devouring each other. It's all parasites from there. Does that make sense? Now, there's the, pro- the issue here, though, is that what then happens to such a person or such a people? And there's only two possible results. One is, is that you just keep devouring until there's nothing left to devour. The prodigal son eating the food for pigs, right? Hosea's wife laying half dead in the field when she'd run out of lovers, run out of time, run out of people who cared about her. Or this woman who's given everything away, there's nothing left. And all her former lovers want to do is kill her, right? And her husband's done with her. The second possibility is shame, which is at some point, lewdness is broken by someone coming to themselves. That's literally the words used in the book of Luke for the prodigal son. That while he was starving to death, eating the food of pigs, it says he came to himself. Something happened in the midst of being devoured and feeling the pain you inflicted on others, actually suffering the right penalty that is appropriate for what you really did. Abandonment, loss, being cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Having nothing and nowhere, being totally isolated and alone, and at that moment remembering that you deserve this. You did this. Other people did part of it, but you did this. And you were never meant to be this way, and you don't have to stay this way. You don't. You don't have to stay here. Right? The prodigal son says, my father's servants have food to eat. Hosea's wife says, I'm going to go back to my husband because it was better with him. Right? And God says to her, when I actually unleash upon you all of the punishment you actually deserve, you will remember. Now, what that means is, is that confrontation makes restoration possible, even for the lewd, even for those who have seared their conscience as much as possible. There's something about intervention and consequences that are a shock cocktail to the human moral system that actually, can actually bring home saving moral gravity that can allow us to actually bear the beauty of glorification so that we will be capable of receiving something that would have destroyed us before and did, in most cases, destroy us before. And you're like, well, wait a second, Nick. That didn't happen to me because I had a pretty good life, and then I became a Christian. No, see, the problem is, is that, the, like, since I've become a Christian, I've pretty much followed the Lord. No, no, no. The trans— you, you, when you were born, you received transformative grace because you were a creature made in the image of God. You've never not been a queen. 
in that sense. Do you understand? You were, you were born in the image of God. You were born with splendor. And we couldn't bear it. That's what redemption's all about. Right? So, <clears throat> most people say, wait, wait, whoa, 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 Nick. Like, I've been reading psychology textbooks, or I've been watching videos on TED Talks and stuff like that, and like, it's pretty clear that shame is bad. This idea that shame is good is like, it's that, that's probably a terrible idea. Um, here's the problem. In numerous places in the Bible, it says shame can be good. Right? Now, is that because the Bible is psychologically unsophisticated, and it doesn't understand how we recover from shame, and that shame is a fundamentally in, in, in like, just bad thing? Is God psychologically um, unsophisticated, or is the Bible not God's actual word because it, it's unsophisticated on shame? And part of this is just like, we just don't like to think carefully. Okay, there's at least three kinds of shame. At least. There's probably 12, but there's at least three. If you got these three clear enough, that would probably be enough. And it's incredibly important. The first is what you might call psychological shame. And that's what everybody's talking about when they say it's bad, okay? Psychological shame is essentially self-hatred or self-condemnation. It's the belief that you just aren't—you have some kind of flaw or set of flaws that fundamentally just make you unworthy to be loved, unworthy to belong, and unworthy to be connected with. And that is like a pro program that's running in your system all the time. You're just not worth being loved. Nobody cares about you. Nobody's going to care about you because you have unworkable flaws, and that's all there is to it. And that is not what the Bible means by shame anywhere. It really isn't what anybody's ever meant by shame throughout the entire history of the world. If you read literature from any culture, any society, when they say shame, this is not what they've ever meant. Now, that doesn't mean that American psychologists, when they use it, can't mean something important. But you see, the problem is, as a Christian, if you believe shame is always bad because these psychologists use that word, then when you read it in the Bible, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt your faith because you'll be like, wait a second, why is God shaming people? Shaming is, an, is abuse, right? God's an abuser. Like, well, how can I believe that he's this loving God? And here's the reason. You're just confused about nomenclature. And this is one reason why I'm frustrated with the field of psychology right now, because it would not be hard to call this self-condemnation or self-hatred. It has been called that for years. I believe the use of the word shame in this context is actually um, a, a splicing together of two separate categories that is very unhelpful, okay? But if what you feel as shame is self-loathing, self-hatred, because you really believe nobody cares about you because you're just flawed, God does not believe that. That's not true. God has made you inherently and ineradicably worthy of love, belonging, and connection. Eradicably. Everything he's done in creation has been to bring you into his love, his belonging, and his connection, and that with other people who are capable of love. Right? And so when psychologists say the remedy for this is self-compassion and vulnerability with empathetic people, that's precisely the New Testament's solution for it. But God offers an additional substitution for it, Besides, so on what basis can you give yourself self-compassion? Because some of your flaws might be real, and some of those flaws may have produced real sins, and maybe you really are a bad person. Maybe that's your set of flaws. That's why the concept of justification, that is a religious concept, has to go along with the psychological concept of self-compassion. How does God make it right for you to offer yourself self-compassion, even though some of the things that adjudicate your flaws are real evils? And the answer is, because you are justified by the death of Jesus Christ. That's why. You're justified. You are counted 
unflawed, worthy of love. You are, your guilt is put away. So the, the, point, the part of your family of flaws or what you may have done that makes you feel like you're unlovable has been put away in Christ. And he has died to demonstrate his own stamp of your worthwhileness to love and belonging and connection with himself. He has died to be connected with you. Right? And so you can then receive God's compassion. And if God is for you, who can be against you? It says in Romans 8, not even you, it turns out. Not even you can be against you if God is for you. And so you have to give the compassion to yourself that God gives to you. And then you can be vulnerable because you're justified. Why can't you be vulnerable with somebody else? God is for you. Who can be against you? You can be vulnerable with another person. And they can be empathetic towards you, both as a sinner and as a justified saint, and as a person who's longing for love and connection. Does that make sense? So when I say the stuff I'm about to say, do not come up and tell me that I'm not compassionate and I don't care about people, because I do. I just don't want them to be trapped in lie nomenclature that screws with their head so that they can't receive the full blessings of God. Okay? Now, Another, this is, now, there's another definition that basically the whole world is used for thousands of years, which is the social or cultural concept of shame, which is the opposite of honor, right? There's honor, and then there's shame. And shame in this context just means you deserve a, pro- a proportionate and appropriate moral approbation for failing to act justly and responsibly in a group of people. John, you should have been to the meeting on time. You were 10 minutes late. Don't do that again. Right? He didn't live up to what he was supposed to live up to. He was supposed to be at the meeting. He wasn't at the meeting. Doesn't mean we cast him out. We don't say, John, you are unworthy of love, connection, and belong. We don't know. But we're like, look, there's a certain amount of social appropriation you deserve for not living up to what we all need you to do in this tribe so that we can all move forward and have a healthy society and life together. You've got, there's a certain amount of moral conformity that is your responsibility. When you don't do that, we tell you so. Right? Think about not wearing masks in Madison or wearing them anywhere else in the state. right? You're not living up to your responsibility, right? Think about it relative to—like, there's so many things I can't get into right now, but you you know what I'm saying, right? And the the remedy for this is not—is not self-compassion or empathy. The—it's recovery and restitution. I'm sorry I was late. I will not be late again. Um, Right? I'm going to recover as a person. I'm going to be on time. I'm going to put this stuff in my calendar. I'm going to make sure I'm there because I want to live up to these community standards because they're perfectly proportionate. They're perfectly just. I should live up to it. And if I don't, I am treating you unjustly. I'm not being empathetic to you, the group I live among. Does that make sense? And it's immoral. And I'm not going to be that person. I don't want to live in shame. I want to live in honor. And there's nothing morally wrong with those categories. It all depends on what the categories of shame and honor are in any particular subgroup. And how we apply them. There's nothing wrong with this concept. And then thirdly is what the Bible means, which is moral or spiritual shame. Which is, shame is the opposite of lewdness. Lewdness is the searing of the moral concert, conscience where I don't care what's right, I don't care what's good, I don't care what you want, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you think my responsibilities are. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to transgress as I feel. I'm going to do what I think is good. I'm going to do what makes me happy. Everything's transactional. I'm my own person, right? And shame is when in that lostness, in that moral and spiritual starvation, something happens that you come to yourself. Memory is reawakened. And you remembered you used to belong to somebody. Or that you remembered that somebody pushed you out of belonging somewhere along the line, and now you've been fighting it ever since. Or that, like, something 
Somebody offered to love you, and you didn't receive it. Or like, God has always been good to you in many ways that you wouldn't receive, or that you received and then used, and that you did that, right? Like, it, it's an awakening, right? And so the problem is, is that in this context, shame is the remedy. <laughs> you see, in the first context, shame is the problem. In this context, shame is the remedy. You see, if you don't keep those clearly distinct in your mind, think of the confusion that will ensue. And think of how you will wall yourself off from God to pursue a healing that is supposed to be supported by the work of God. Right? But if you just keep those clear, it's not that hard. Right? One of the things that bothers me, because I just can't leave well enough alone, is how our culture is so drawn to the concept of empathy, right? That, and I think it's because there's, there's been a disenchantment with the larger structure of historic American personal ethics. Because it didn't, it hasn't fixed problems that socially a lot of people feel like they're still suffering under. There's a lot of reasons for it. But when you, you wipe away things like a Christian, Judeo-Christian structure of personal morality, what replaces it? How do you Remake it. Can you remake ethics by reason alone? The answer is no, you can't. So what, how do you ground the moral choices we make and the moral relationships we all have to have with each other if we don't want to have anything like a society? And so the shortest answer for people who are focused mainly on neurology is like, what in the human animal produces morality? And they believe wrongly that it's empathy and that through empathy, it will, if you really empathize with people, it will create the right moral impulse in most situations, which is actually pretty close to true if it were possible. Now, I want to clarify what Jesus actually said, which is very close to the demand for empathy, okay? So, so as a Christian, I just go against everything that the crowd is— uh, not as a Christian, as Nick Gibson— and a highly disagreeable human being. I naturally go against everything the crowd is interested in, okay? So when everybody says empathy, I'm, I'm just personally automatically against it, okay? You just need to understand that about me personally, okay? But what that means is, the reason for that is, is that I see in the Bible, everybody's going along with stuff, and they end up damned, okay? And so I feel like there's a certain amount of spiritual disagreeability that's appropriate. And when it comes to empathy, I say, okay, is that what Jesus commanded? And it's, it's very close, right? Jesus said to do to others as you would be done by. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. That is the assumption in what people mean by having empathy, right? If you could understand other people, then you would understand how they wish to be treated based on your compassion for their experiences, and you would be motivated by that empathy to do to them as they want to be done by. Does that make sense? They used to say, it used to be said in a, in a less cliched form, in the South in particular, it was made famous by um, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, that you don't really understand another person until you walk a mile in their shoes, right? And there's a lot of truth to that. But Jesus <coughs> doesn't demand from us that we properly conceptualize the mind and feeling and experiences of others. That's actually impossible. It's not possible. That's why empathy as a fundamental guiding force is impossible because, not because it's not right, it's because it's impracticable. What Jesus says is, you actually have to transfer the relationship of humanity empathetically to other people. I'm a human being. How would I want to be treated as a human being? Now, treat them that way. You see, in that sense, that's a lot of empathy. If fundamentally with another person is before anything else is a human being, if you could just transfer that much, 
and treat other people as you would want to be treated as a human being. We're going to get way further than we've gotten. Nobody's doing that yet. Okay? And if we get to that point where literally everybody is treating other people the way they want to be treated, then we might be psychologically healthy enough that we could come up with some kind of computerized artificial intelligence and wear little helmets that tell us the full experiences of others where we could experience neurological empathy fully with all people and then we could fulfill the law of Christ in some like utterly transcendent way which I don't even understand if it's even conceptually possible. Maybe that would be good. But let's just start with what Jesus said, which we haven't done for 2,000 years, which is to treat other people as we want to be treated. Here's why we don't really want empathy, though. We say we want it. We don't want it. We want it for other people. We want other people to have empathy for us. Because here's the thing. It doesn't make any difference if you have empathy for people you don't impact and that don't impact you. It doesn't make any difference. If you empathize with some abstraction, you realize that's literally nonsense, right? Empathizing with an abstraction, which is what virtually all of humanity is to you. If I try, imagine me trying to empathize with black people. Do you understand that that's literally conceptually impossible? Because black people is by definition an abstraction. There is no black people. There are black people, but there is no black people, right? I can't empathize with an abstraction. It's impossible. I can empathize with the human beings that are African-American in my life and who I don't interact with regularly, but who I impact, right? Now, here's the problem. What happens when you actually empathize with the human beings that you impact? If you believe in the additional Christian premise that you are selfish and sinful, what will it awaken you to? Your lewdness. Your guilt. Empathy. See, this is the, the irony of secularity right now in just the way the words are swimming in the ether. Not in how they're technically used, but how they swim in our mind as we just drink in TikTok and stuff, right? Is we're supposed to be empathetic, but we're never supposed to feel shame. Right? How does that work? If you really feel like— I mean, can you imagine? I mean, think about this for just one second. Imagine I had a dream, right? Like I took some medicinal mushrooms, and I had a dream— and in that dream, I was able to get into the psyche of my wife and my four children. Truly. Just swim in it. And in, and in that dream, I like swam through all the ways that I have selfishly hurt those five people in the course of my life. All of it. Truly. How do you think I would feel? What do you think that would do to me? I guarantee you the presence of overwhelming shame would be the main part of it. The regret, the horror, the unshakable memory. And here's the thing. What God is saying is, that would be good. That would be saving to you. It would be grounding. As far as we know right now, it's neurologically impossible. But think about this. Why does God tell the story this way? Why does he tell the story this way? Why does he tell it like this? Because you and I cannot empathize with God. We can't. He's God. We are humans. We can't empathize with him. What he's trying to do is to tell us a story that is as like what's going on as possible so that on some level we will begin to empathize a little bit with what it's like to be God in a relationship to human beings and what he wants for us and what he longs for us and what we could be and what we've done and how it affects it, what that means for us, so that we would wake up. 
We would have memory. We would see the past as it really is, that we would grow and change and move and, and be reshaped, right? And that's really one of the cores of this passage all the way through is this idea of memory, right? Jesus, or the Lord says to the, to the wife, he said, listen, you didn't remember when you did this. When you went after those lovers, you didn't remember when you were kicking in your blood in your youth and I came to you. You, don't, you didn't remember it. In 1643, he said, you didn't remember, you didn't remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all the things that you did. You just didn't remember, right? And then he says, that's why this condemnation is coming to you because you're going to remember because you have to. Because lewdness will cannibalize and utterly destroy you. You have to find your moral gravity because I'm, I have to remake you into a queen with splendor, what I always intended, what I did before, and what I will do better again. And to do that, you have to have the moral gravity in order to bear it. And you couldn't bear it the first time. Don't you see? You weren't morally capable of glory. And you're going to be morally capable of glory. And so you're going to remember. Right? And then he says, after all that pain, after all that confrontation, he says, he says, when it's all ending, he says, then I will remember. I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of youth, and I will reestablish an everlasting covenant. He says, it's not like the old one. I'm going to make a new one, and it will be everlasting, and then, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed and you'll receive your sisters, both young and old. Remember, if you read the passage carefully, the, the sisters Samaria and Sodom are as bad as she is, but then she was worse. And when he redeems her, he says, the beauty I'm going to give you after you killed your own children is I'm going to give you these two sisters that you were too good for, you thought you were better than, who are still broken, still hurting, still lost, still degraded, still lewd. And I'm going to give them to you as your daughters so you can raise them as a loving mother queen. And you can show them what it means to be loved, what it means to live in the covenant love of beautiful verdancy where there is life and growth and splendor and beauty, and you will overcome them. You will bring healing to the nations. You will be a queen like this world has yet never seen. And that covenant will be everlasting. It will be forever. You will be eternally healed because the moral gravity that you went through with all of this will be like an immunity to it happening again. You will be saved for glory. God, as we um, think about what it means to be your church in the midst of these truths, we know that in this particular time, the metaphor was sterner because of that this being like one of the worst moments in spiritual history. But we recognize that we're the same kind of human beings we realize that we have some of the same dynamics operating in our lives, and we pray that you would heal and help us. Please, help us to find our moral gravity. Help us to empathize with you, and not just demand everybody empathize with us. Help us to feel justified in our worthless shame, but also help us to find our shame in all the areas of our lewdness. Help us to be recovered and restored. Help us to be members of that everlasting covenant and help us to be your church, that whatever is said about us, people know that we're faithful. In Jesus' name.